it was a big detriment and a massive responsibility that was ungraspable when it said, you know, the rancher and the farmer feeds the world. And yeah. it's like, whoa, uh, I, you know, that's a lot. And that's actually, we're, we want to feed our communities and we want to feed our, ourselves and our families. And, and each farmer and rancher does that all over the globe. It's, and that was a big thing. And that, and that was what created Big Ag in all the wrong ways. This is A New Angle. And I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. A while back, I received a listener comment suggesting that we make the show more representative of the Montana economy and the agricultural sector in particular. So I'm excited today to dig into the topic of regenerative ag and some exciting things happening in the Tom Minor Basin of southwestern Montana. Malou Anderson Ramirez and her family are doing some bold, controversial, and inspiring things, using technology in ways to make their ranching operation more sustainable and more integrated with the natural system in which they live. Malou is joined by a New Angle alumna, Lara Burks, who helps us understand what's happening in regenerative agriculture through the lens of rural entrepreneurship. You might recall that Lara referenced Malou's family ranch on several occasions during our first interview. So it was great to get these two together for a dynamic conversation, and I'm stoked for you to hear it right now. Okay, so we're here today with Malou Anderson Ramirez and Lara Burks back on the podcast for round two. Ladies, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having us. All the way from the Paradise Valley. Huh? Well, actually, it's Tom Minor Basin. It's part of Paradise Valley, right? It's it's a, it? it's its own it's its own place, it's but its own it, thing. it is at the at the edge of Paradise Valley. At the edge, yeah. at the edge of a lot of things. It is Paradise, Yellowstone, yep. etc. So, uh, Malou, you are a, an active rancher in the Tom Minor Basin. How how many generations has your ranch been in the family? Uh, I'm the third, and my wow. children who are living on the place are the fourth. Okay. So. And did your did your family establish the ranch? No, no, we were actually newbies on the ranch back in the fifties when okay. my when my grandfather purchased it after coming back from World War II and um, moving back west, needing to get out of the family business in the Midwest, and uh, found Tom Meyer Basin when he was looking for hay for some cattle he had down in Paradise Valley at the time. Okay, so found plenty of hay. Found some place. of the best hay ever. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So. Um, the two of you kind of, how, how actually did you cross paths? I mean, Larry, you're, you're relatively recent, uh, back to the back to Montana, Paradise Valley in particular. You know, we're going to encourage listeners to listen to the previous episode where we kind of got more of your story. But the two of you cross paths somehow. I'd love to hear that story. You're better at it. We, we met at the old saloon. Okay. <laughs> that's, is is that's, that the name of the sal- old saloon or it, is it just the old saloon? It is the old saloon okay. in immigrant Montana. That's that's the short explanation. Um, but we're also on the Western Sustainability Exchange Board together. Okay. And what um, is that organization all about? So the Western Sustainability Exchange, based in Livingston, works with farmers and ranchers on carbon soil sequestration initiatives. And um, Malou and her family have been... Uh, a part of that for a long time. Okay. So we we met around that, but also neighbors in relative terms in Paradise Valley and s- similar interests. And I have learned so much from Alou and her family ar- around um, what it means to have a sustainable um, business in the context of the rural Mountain West. Yeah, we're going to talk all about what that all that stuff means. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah. What, what? Actually, let's just start there. Yeah. I mean, what is to you, Malou, and your family? What is a sustainable business? What does that mean? Boy, um, I think that's changed a lot for us over the years. Um, when talking and ranching. Um, you know, it's profitability and being able to stay on the land. Um, we've always been really fortunate in our family to have um, education as a really important, pivotal part of the of the work we do. And mm-hmm. um, and so we all left the ranch in one form or fashion to um, to get education, either from Missoula to back east. Sure. Um, and so that always sort of set us apart from a lot of our friends and neighbors and that, um, you know, we were, n- we were not necessarily more educated than anyone, but we just had a different angle of thinking of, of things. Okay. A little broader worldview. Is yeah. that kind of what you're yeah. getting at? Yes, I would say and so. And where did you, you studied psychology? Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. I started here in wildlife biology in Missoula. Okay. Um, and then, um, went to psychology in Bozeman and, and with an emphasis on animal assisted therapies. Sure. Um, and practiced in that space for a while. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. what was was the intention always to go back to the to the family business, or did, what, what did that TikTok look like? Not necessarily. The family business was always a mixed enterprise. Or, okay. I mean, I shouldn't say that. The family business was always not just cattle and agriculture. Mm-hmm. It, we were always raising cattle and sheep, and we we raised sheep first with some cattle, and then the wolves were reintroduced, and that was a good time for us to say goodbye to the sheep um, yep. since we neighbor Yellowstone <laughs> Park. Um, call it call us crazy. Um, and then um, we, my dad has been an educator, a lifelong educator, a school administrator. He, he works and lives in Alaska most of the year. My mom is a PA, physician's assistant, um, okay. who also has worked in and out of the, the village systems in Alaska for many years since I was in high school, almost 20 years. Um, and they're both r- sort of thinking about retirement. And um, so the ranch has always had agriculture along with these other things. Okay. Okay. So. And has that been just a decision born out of necessity that we have to have these other income streams to keep the whole enterprise afloat or is that just hey we want more than one thing in our life i think both okay yep okay both interesting yep and what's actually let's spend a little bit of time i'm not sure how familiar with ranching in general our listeners are you might have various conceptions of what that looks like can you sort of talk about the range of types of ranch operations in a state like montana Sure. What that looks like. Sure, and and I'm no expert, but um, conventionally, a cow calf operation is a pretty standard form of agricultural income. Okay. Um, or you know, a stock grower of some sort, um, and so often in Montana, that is a cow calf operation, and that's a, an old conventional system. Um, that can also be cropland, you know, di- diverse cropland of either hay or, or alfalfa, um, and then also other crops for people. Sure. Um, and then now it's really changed pretty seriously in the direction of different uh, being able to raise different classes of animals and and, bre- and breeds. And so a class, a different class of animals would be like a cow calf versus a a yearling stalker or a two year old grass finished steer. Um, okay, all different forms of beef products, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. And so um, now in the regenerative model and also just a, a sort of a new form of ag, you can make quite a bit of money in things things like custom grazing where you don't own animals. You own the land. The, the landowner has the land and um, someone else brings cattle in oh, to graze okay. and utilize your grass resource. And if you know what you're doing in a, a land healing type of situation, then you can utilize that animal as a tool. So it's you're 
you're getting a, a double benefit. You're getting paid for your grass. Sure. Um, and you're also utilizing that tool to better your range. Okay. So, okay. And so, so where changing. does – so a wide variety, like what would be sort of the standard like uh, like corporate style ranch – you know, do those exist in Montana? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I would I would say the standard corporate style is a is a big cow calf operation. Okay, and yep. selling their their product into a feedlot eventually. Yep. Yeah, selling and, calves in the fall. Yeah, um, calving out in the winter, and now thankfully it's turning more and more into sort of spring calving or or even even better summer calving. Um, but yeah, cow calf operation winter calving in the winter and selling in the fall. And why is that even better? Just because it's better climate for having babies? It, yeah. Well, if you're, I shouldn't say it's not necessarily better financially, although there are models that it could be, um, but it's better when you are mimicking nature and in regenerative ag, you're, you're, um, you're ranching with nature and okay. in nature things calve in, or things have babies in the, in the late spring and early summer. So let's actually, let's dig into that term regenerative ag. Cause I've, I've heard you mention that a couple of times in the last minute or two. And that's an area where I think you and Lara collaborate. What, what is regenerative ag? Like what, what is it as a broad concept? Um, there's a few different definitions. I'd say that one thing uh, is that it's very minimal inputs. So in conventional agricultural systems, you are talking, there's a lot of talk about fertilizers, um, inputs onto your landscape that make it better, you know, quote unquote better. Um, in regenerative ag, it's minimal inputs. And if there are inputs, it's natural. And it's uh, based on a system already, a greater system already at work, the ecosystem that okay. we are just part of, instead of trying to dominate and change for our um, actual agricultural businesses. Um, and then also with that goes into talks like uh, soil health, carbon inputs and outputs, um, uh, you know, all these new, you know, all these terms that we're using in the climate conversation and so forth. Okay, so a couple things there that are probably uh, not uncontroversial in your world. I heard the word carbon. I heard the word climate, mm-hmm. um, and also sort of the, you know the, the when when you started defining that term, it sounded it sounded sort of common sense, like working within nature. Yet on the flip side of that, like many view nature as this thing that we sort of is at our disposal or something that we need to control. Yeah. Sounds like re- regenerative ag is, n- is not that. Yeah, it's the idea that we are not apart from nature. Okay. We are it and yeah. it is us. So, how did you get to I mean, does that does that make you a pariah in your community or like how do you fit in like it sounds it sounds great to me, but yes. how does that resonate in your world? Um you know, there's a lot of layers. Um and some I can talk about and some I can't. I'd say that I am incredibly grateful to come from a family and my parents especially who deeply, from the very beginning, has deeply valued a relationship with the land. And that doesn't just mean moving cattle and riding our favorite horses, although that entails that as well. Um, it also means exploring and experimenting with a, a very deep spiritual connection. Um, as my grandmother used to say long ago, before it was cool, I, I say now, we look, we, we like, look at, at landscape at, in terms of a spiritual asset. And um, that, so it's the connection is not just like, t- you know, in agriculture here, these beautiful romantic stories about these multi-generational ranchers uh, being tied to the land. And, right. Um, to me, it's, you know, I, th- I think in pictures, and it's it's more than just a, a knot. 
you know, that ties us to the land. And, and so I'm really grateful that we were raised in that. That was the normal piece. And even though we were raised in a conventional agricultural system, there was always a, a magical piece to it that I can't really put into words, but it was just part of the energy. Hmm. And then when we started to do some more work, uh, reflective work on the landscape as a family and as in deep personal work in um, some, you know, just spiritual aspects on the landscape, that's when it really uh, rang true and, and we felt much more um, that connection was very real. And yeah, so this runs deep. This isn't something that you went off to a fancy college and came back with. No, right? it runs deep. Right. Yeah. And, and Larry, you've been sort of working, you, and how many years have you been in Paradise now? Uh, I guess we're getting close to three years now. Okay. I've been back. And so y- you see the distribution of different types of approaches to the land, different types of approaches to entrepreneurship. Um, how would you sort of classify the Anderson family relative to kind of the, the landscape in, in the valley? So when I came back and, and, you know, tried to start thinking about what was that local application of what I had doing, been doing in sustainability with large companies, how did that apply in the rural Mountain West and potentially with businesses? Kind of two categories that broke out. One was around the solutions that need to be activated, and the okay. other was, was around the challenges that needed to be solved. And when I say challenges that need to be solved, it was looking at things like um, very concrete examples. We have recycling shortages uh, in Montana. It's not realistic uh, when we're talking about plastic and glass. We don't have those same infrastructures in place that you do in large metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. Similarly, there are other countries that are looking at how you use glass and plastics in roads. Is this a challenge in Montana that we should be deploying entrepreneurs and the Montana Department of Transportation to think about addressing. I, those, that's sort of a challenge you saw. Okay. Another you really all the stuff. It's not efficient to recycle it on site, or or maybe it is in or a different to, way. Or to truck it because right now, right, right, right. If, okay. if it is recycled, oftentimes it's trucked long distances. So then you think about the carbon footprint of that. Yep versus an immediate need in a community, is that not a local entrepreneurship opportunity yeah. um, to pair those, you know, that need, um, that challenge? I could tell some, a really interesting story. Well, it's interesting to me because it brings back some flashbacks of uh, was doing the Ironman in Hawaii, oh, okay. right? And uh, I have this fancy bike with these fancy wheels and these fancy race tires, and I've flown, you know, over this ocean to get there. And I, st- I get all these flat tires in the lead up to the race. And one of the locals was like, yeah, dummy, because the roads are made out of glass here. And they recycle the glass into the, into the pavement. And uh, wow. I was like, man, I should have known that. I would have bought more durable tires. <laughs> there's, anyway, a, there's, there's an opportunity for a, for a new kind of tire, right? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> You're always yeah, or just round the edges of that damn glass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, grind it up more. Okay, so recyclables into yeah, the, so the roads and other infrastructural, like probably playgrounds and things like that. So that, interesting, exactly. so that's a challenge. And so a challenge to piece. solve. And then thinking about solutions to activate, that's when, you know, Malou and the the idea that you know, maybe you can talk about in a second around teal tags comes to play, which is, you know, we have an amazing expert in Malou and understanding the future of ranching, how that can be done in conjunction with the landscape. Uh, But how do we start to pair those ideas in a way that activates them with entrepreneurs? Okay. So the business school has actually been a part of piloting what this can look like. 
bringing in MBA students to help Malou with uh, one of the the uh, business ideas that she has. But we need more of that, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of creating something that's either a nonprofit, like right right now, there's a polarity of things. You have a a nonprofit model, and then you've got a really rigorous business model. Those sure. are kind of the, the duality that we see play out most often. But what's the fourth sector? How do we fund business solutions? So it doesn't have to be your usual 10, 20x returns that investors are used to requiring, frankly, before they're, they're willing to make that investment in a new business. It's something in between because the example Malou, I think we'll give in a minute, is has a lot of different impact metrics. There is revenue potential. There's also local employment potential. There's something that feeds back into a need that's in the rural Mountain West. And um, and it has global scale, too, but it, in a way that can be piloted in a particularly unique area like Paradise Valley. I mean, what you're talking about, this fourth sector, it sounds distinct from you know, this, this notion of social investing. Right. Social investing seems like you're, well, you're you're sort of accepting a lower rate of return in exchange for some social value. But what you're talking about seems more holistic. It's a more holistic way of thinking about business. Right. So it's not to say that you don't expect returns, but it is a much more patient capitalist approach. And we're seeing more and more investors that begin to understand that there is a long-term cost to only looking at profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the the shareholder value? Not uh, the stakeholder value, not just the shareholder value. So looking at the stakeholders of a business, and in, you know that could be employees in addition to your uh, shareholders, but in addition to your communities. Mm-hmm. So how are all of those made whole? Because then the business is much more likely to succeed. If you're just looking at returns and a bottom line, it's a lot of what we see in Silicon Valley that isn't lasting very long. Right, yeah, exactly. To, to, the, to that point, exactly, like you're not sort of a slave to a quarterly earnings report. Exactly. Right, so we're not, we're trying to create something more holistic, but also something more enduring. So is this when we pivot to Teal Tax, this, this ent- sure. enterprise that you, you've sort of launched and conceptualized? Yeah, more? it's, it's uh, conceptualized for sure. Um, you know, we're hoping to launch soon, you know, soon in, within the next year or two. Yeah, tell um, us all about it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to go there. So it's uh, originally, um, so it's Teal Tags. It's the, the acronym is, um, is Technology, Education, Agriculture, and Landscape. Um, and my middle name happens to be TLI. Oh. Um, so uh, basically the idea came when I was out trying to find a carcass. And you know, so our, our ranch is in really wild country right next to Yellowstone. We have a really high uh, d- population of grizzly bears uh, and, and wolves and um, a lot of challenges, added challenges that come along with just making it work in ag. Um, and so keeping our animals alive and keeping that platform of tolerance as wide as we can is a big issue. And so um, being the family that we are, we want to see both happen. We want to see conservation of the rancher in that area, and we want to see the wildlife and this, you know, everything happening still. Um, and so I was out trying to find a, a, dead, a dead cow, and um, it was 2016 and in really dangerous country, you know, and just thinking. And then once we find the dead cow or the dead animal, we have to skin it. Well, and you know it's dead because it just hasn't come back. You haven't been able to herd it up. Yeah, or you look for th- you look for sign. So you're out okay. checking cattle, and if you see bird sign or if you see scat, grizzly scat or wolf scat Got with it. with brown hair yep. in it, that's yep. that's that's, 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 a, that's a problem, and there's a dead animal out there. Okay. And through the state of Montana, you have a compensation program through the Livestock Loss Board. Okay. So those ranchers 
breeders who are losing those animals due to predators are at least getting compensated for that loss if the investigation can can determine if it was truly a kill. So you have to find these kills immediately. You sure. Know, they're they're so gone. So there's a financial incentive and a pragmatic incentive to find them right away. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And and while I have um, I have varied uh, opinion on that compensation program, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so uh, we were out trying to find this these animals and, and the, the herds, and I just thought, you know, it's 2016. There's got to be a better way. This yeah, is incredibly think. dangerous. And um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. This is not sustainable. There's so, probably a tag on the grizzly bear that <laughs> killed the... Right. The There's right. probably a tag. Right, right. Exactly. That they have more on them. Um, and so I just started, you know, knowing that we have some satellites up in the air and just realizing that, wow, you know, why can't we just find something where we are tagging these animals with, um, you know, a, a GPS, a wellness tag that's that's a GPS, a, a body temperature and a heart rate so that we would okay. know fight or flight. Um, we would also know if an animal, just a wellness chip. And, yeah. and those are in animals all over the place um, and, and livestock, but they're extremely expensive. Um, and so for a rancher, you know, it has to be look, very cost effective. Sure. If, if actually it has to be lower than cost effective for a rancher to even consider it. Um, and so uh, the idea was, OK, what if we had if we've created this low cost program that um, is then real time. So it's it's the there's an algorithm in that chip in, in, in that tag that determines if there's a little you know funkiness that happens with body temperature or heart rate. Um, and so then we would know in real time, so it would ping to an application on the producer's phone okay. that, you know, 232 is out in the permit right now and something's happening, whether or not it's a grizzly bear it's attacking under stress or somehow. Somehow it's okay. sick or something. Yep. Um, and then if, say, we are a five-hour horse ride away, which is often the case where I'm yeah. from, um, we could put a drone up in the air and quickly go and get some video data on what's happening with that cow. And so then that actually eliminates the need to skin an animal in bear, grizzly bear country. Sure. Um, and we can then get that compensation, and the investigative report from it's a wildlife services report, um, and they could use that data, which I've spoken to many of them as well, and that this would be incredibly useful for them. Um, and so that was that was the beginning of teal tags, um, the, a predator, a conservation of, and really it's a conservation of large carnivores because we want to see the grizzly bears and the wolves. We don't want them to get killed by the the, the rancher, but we also want the rancher to survive. And we, and actually, more importantly, too, in a lot of ways, we we need large landscapes to stay large due to ranchers staying there. Yeah. So you have uh, there's a couple things within that. So you've got not only does the teal tag serve this purpose of um, providing a more efficient mechanism for locating and and driving this compensation quickly but also are there ways to be are there ways it can be predictive of conflict with predators and so forth yeah prob- probably uh, especially if when it goes into the sector of wildlife chipping uh, yeah. and and understanding their movement and their behaviors more um there was sort of a phase two of thinking about how we could train predators, you know, by hazing them when we come on to them, you know. Um, but the, I, I have issues with that. I feel like there's some uh, invasiveness in that. Yeah, what do you mean by hazing? Hazing is when is what we do to large carnivores or anything that, um, you know, say, so up in the basin, if we have a grizzly bear that's coming too close to headquarters, we would, if, if she is a repeat offender or he is a repeat offender, um, we would um, shoot 
cracker shells up into the air, you know, really loud bullets. Okay. Or there's a lot of different ways that um, FW fish, Fishing Game and Wildlife Services haze animals. And and sometimes it's a gray area, but sometimes ranchers are allowed to do that as well, mm-hmm. um, more so in the past um, when when there's an issue, you know, a consistent issue. Sure. Um, and they're very smart and they learn quickly. And there's a lot of hazing that happens in the park, you know, around, not a lot, but there's a hazing that happens in the park around um, grizzly bears coming into Yellowstone. Close to, yep, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, and uh, and other and other carnivores and all over the world. And the polar bears are hazed a lot with villages, and, and elephants are hazed in Africa with coming into villages. And mm-hmm. um, so, so it's it's effective, yet it puts stress. It's on invasive. A population. It, it is, and and we don't want to do that. And so that that's actually off the table at this point until we can sort of identify what that looks like a little bit okay. better. Okay. Um, but. But phase three would be uh, the use of sort of a idea of geofencing um, or virtual fencing using the tag, the wellness tag to help um, really create amazing regenerative, uh, holistic grazing patterns that uh, can be of service to, you know, large mass uh, herds of bison and cattle so that we can, again, utilize that cattle as a tool to to heal our land and to make it better. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hey, this is Mark Moss from Tell Us Something, and you're listening to A New Angle. Yeah, how does geofencing work? What is that, and how how do you actually do it? It's pretty new. Um, They're doing a lot of – they're experimenting a lot in New Zealand and Australia. But basically, um, for this – it's sort of like an invisible dog fence. It's the same yeah, idea. Yeah, that's sort of what I imagined when you were yeah. laying it out there. Yeah, but instead of actually um, burying cable, yeah, you, yeah, it would all be, you know, it would be virtual. Be the tag. Yeah. Okay, so the yeah. tag coordinates to some GPS, and mm-hmm. when the animal goes someplace it shouldn't, it gets pinged somehow. Yeah, exactly. It sort of vibrates in the ear as it yeah, gets yeah, closer yeah. to a barrier, okay. um, a fence that you can change and manipulate and um, move mm. or, you know, say you have a sensitive riparian area or a, a wildlife corridor yep. or something, um, you can then sort of keep your animals, your livestock out of it, out of those places. So uh, it's going to happen. You know, that'll be, the, that'll seems, be the future of agriculture at some point. Yeah. It, might... it seems like a slam dunk. Um, <laughs> like, okay, this makes my life a lot easier. I don't have to like break my back, putting up a fence, taking down a fence, repairing a fence, all this other stuff. But it, it, there has to be resistance, there right? There is. I would imagine. Yep. Like, did neighbors just sort of say, no way, I want a no, real fence? No, my neighbors uh, have all been very – everyone's very excited. Most Nobody says good geofences make good neighbors, right? That hasn't, <laughs> that's not a thing yet? Sorry. No, but that will be a thing. <laughs> um, I think uh, the biggest resistance I get is uh, two things. One, is the the main thing, and, and actually it's my brother that is my devil's advocate who runs okay. and it helps uh, run uh, one of the biggest grass-fed companies in Montana. And he is very connected um, to the land. And he said, so is this going to take away – why I do this, you know, why mm. is this going to take away my cowboy way of life right. and being able the to work. take that five hour ride out and try to find the carcass. And, um, my answer to that is no, you know, after growing up on these operations together and literally riding together for many hours of many days, um, the amount of labor it takes to do things that we could have been, it could be much more efficient with new tools allows us to find more nourishment on the land that drives us in agriculture. Mm. And that nourishment is very a very little percent right now. You know, we're not 
it's not fun to do most of the other things that we have to do in agriculture to make it work, like vaccinating cattle and running them through a chute and branding. And, you know, I don't like branding. I know many people do, but it's barbaric and there's a better way. Um, and and I don't care who you are. It's true. Um, but that way we can find more time to do the things that really nourish us. Sure. So, Lara, how do you, you sort of see the stuff that Malou and her, and her, you know, her family are, are developing, whether it's techniques, whether it's devices, whether it's the intersection of those two things? Like how are you sort of approaching this from the business standpoint of, of helping things like this come to life in a way that they can become products and services that other people mm-hmm. purchase, subscribe to, et cetera? I think another big component of what Malou's described through teal tags is the um, link back to our food systems. That's something we've been talking about over the last few days. So when I consider the supply chain verification of what the Anderson Ranch is doing, you can trace everything back to a source and to Mm -hmm. a practice. And in all of the conversations we have around certifications and verification and knowing that people want to have that certainty of where their food comes from, in addition to understanding how it was raised and treated, and even better if there's a biodiverse ecosystem component to that, how do we represent this to a consumer or to a buyer in a way that they can immediately understand that it's credible? And while this may be, you know, a little bit off in the future, the, one of the conversations has been around, you know, a blockchain. Yep. And yep. I know that was something we talked about mm-hmm. previously, but it's a classic example you know, because it gets back to this whole notion of rewarding best practices, keeping ranchers on the land. How do you come up with ways of actually commoditizing this? And um, and when I say this, it's all of the practices that we're describing sure. here that have um, the bare premium. Uh, price in the market and sh- and should so. Let me say bear premium. Like does the does the product coming out of your ranch, Malou, command a premium in the marketplace? Is that is that what you're getting at? Yes, I think, and not even off my ranch, off of all the ranches in the Yellowstone country. Okay. And actually, we are a really small ranch compared to the ones who are really doing a lot of work. Um, absolutely, you know, just direct traceability to those animals and not just that, oh, good, this animal came from this ranch. It's more like, you know, what what had to be done to keep this animal alive and how was this animal raised and w- how did they go above and beyond to do the right thing in animal husbandry and humane practices Um and then also keeping in mind of the, the ecosystem. What do we do to, you know, to not just tolerate a, a wild ecosystem, but to enhance it and to support it? Yeah. Um, absolutely. And and the, the, the stories now, that's what people want to hear. You know, we don't want to just eat meat anymore. I mean, a lot of people do. We want the stories and the narrative behind that meat, the, the, the heart space feel of, you know, what am I, what, what experience is this as I eat this and what happened here? And that, thankfully, is sort of an emerging trend in the food we're eating. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that, although that trend is sort of, and maybe this is just the way these sort of things bear out, but it, it to me it exists in a world of a bit of privilege. For sure. Right? Like some, uh, you know, I go to Whole Foods and I buy this fancy steak and I can scan the blockchain yep. and figure out, you know, its name and how it was treated. It's like a skid out of Portlandia, right? Um, does it have to start there and then... I don't want to use trickle down, but sort of permeate down the food chain, so to speak, in terms of socioeconomic status or accessibility or 
Well, we, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but it's true. We, we don't need the amount of animals, of beef animals that we okay. have on the Interesting. planet. Yeah. We just don't. We, and we can. Yeah. Talk we, about that more. Like, I, I don't, I don't know what that well, premise we, we means. We just need to change the way we're eating. And, okay. And we need maybe not to, as Lara puts it, it's, you know, it's, it's not how much we're consuming. It's what we're consuming and the value of what we're consuming. Mm. And so, you know, perhaps it's not ideal in in the future in sustainability to eat meat seven times a week or five times a week and um, perhaps we should just eat it a few times a week along with everything else and but eat higher quality and higher quality yeah produce more ethically yeah yeah okay now i'm getting it yes and and why can't we look at that because at this point in time it's just i don't know you know we all know what it looks like and then and then bring in the climate conversation about that Mm -hmm. and cattle and and what that all means which is very real i mean whether or not we as ranchers want to accept it or not it's a very real conversation and um and you know this is where again i get myself in trouble but it's true and uh that's the the other part of the teal tag that's so exciting is that we can actually um start to gather data around microclimate and you know around beef production and and what the the copyright <laughs> carbon hoof print sure um, carbon what, hoof print what, i like that what that looks like um yeah thanks to john if he listens to this um and so uh, there's very real information there that we need to start gathering and i'm sure we're starting to but most of our data is coming from the soil and from the actual atmosphere and not a lot of data is coming from the animal that's in the middle um, and so that that's really an exciting piece because that takes the price point, which is a real big barrier, out of the rancher's hand and into government agencies and, and climate okay. scientists and so forth. That we really need that data. Um, it's, that's climate infrastructure. Um, so it, there's a lot of different angles this could go on. It started with a predator, as we were just talking. It, it's a it's a Montana issue. It's a it's a Montana Rocky Mountain Montana issue. Predators and and that interface, mm-hmm. but it becomes a global issue very quickly with when we talk about climate and food systems and a cracked and I'd say broken system of big agriculture that we need to move away from. And this could be a, a solution or a, one of the solutions to um, a multifaceted thing. By verifying the process that you know, Malou has described, you then begin to see what doesn't exist in most food systems. So to your earlier question around price points, it, it shouldn't be something that only privileged people can purchase, but people need to understand the, the hidden costs of cheap products. Mm, yeah, They don't incorporate environmental yes. externalities. Yep. Yeah. When you buy cheap meat, it usually has an animal welfare component to it, uh, water runoff issues, desertification, you know, all kinds of things that this system that we're describing here in Montana would not have. And so, yes, there is a higher cost to that, but that's also where you say, do I just treat this as something that I have on a few occasions as opposed to all the time? And that's a consumer behavior change. Yeah. And we're used to this, but we don't need that you know, dietarily. And so do we just begin to think about how we moderate that so that you you are paying more, but that money is going back into a community, into an economy, and into an entire ecosystem that supports so much more than just that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems achievable. I mean, as we're talking about, like, the difficulty of adopting these various things, like, I'm thinking, Malou, of you and your neighbors and some people just saying, well, why the hell you don't want to just shoot the bears or whatever? Oh, I get that question a lot. Right. But like yeah. convincing those people that your way of doing this might be a, a, a through line that they haven't seen yet, that seems way easier 
than trying to actually like sure. create a system that accounts for these negative externalities yeah. in people's mm-hmm. daily choices. I mean, they pick yeah. up a Slim Jim at 7-Eleven and it's <laughs> 50 cents. Mm-hmm. But yeah, right. all those other things that went into it, it's production. Like how do, that's a big question. I mean, this fourth sector thing might address some of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How do we get there? Well, I think the nice thing about starting here is that you're not taking all of that on. So you're highlighting what's being done well. And if you start looking at what's being done well, then most people will start to question, well, if they're talking about all these things, then what are the other ones doing? Sure. Because they're not talking about it. And so I, I would say a critical mind will start to ask the questions that most people don't want to disclose for the cost of... Mm-hmm. The high cost of a cheap good. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that we're describing taking on the whole ag, like large ag industry. It's highlighting the, the the things, the best practices here, with the hopes that consumers will begin to really understand why you pay more for something mm-hmm. like this. And in that, the rancher becomes what what used to be and still is. The rancher is sort of the villain of of anything uh, degrading to landscape and wildlife. Mm. Um, and biodiversity, it, you know, they they are empowered and they become, in a lot of ways, this, if this is almost sort of a grassroots, it, it becomes a, a, they are the hero in the story, and, right. and we are the people who said, hey, we have that, we can we can use tech to preserve the really wonderful ways of the rural tra- traditions and why we, where we find our nourishment and our spiritual asset while t- asking tough questions and moving on from the really crappy ones and being able to let go of the old traditions that no longer serve us and, and frankly never did. Um, and so it's it's an exciting thing in the Regen talk of regenerative agriculture and how even the old multi-generational ranching families can empower themselves and mm-hmm. really be a, a fundamental piece in this in this shift. I mean that that and Lara and I talked about this in our last conversation. That notion of the the, the rancher, the farmer, the agriculturalist is the hero. I think it really needs to be emphasized yes. here. Yes. I mean, this, this, these these folks are often vilified by urbanites who don't have a clue where their food comes, right. or or think they know and are judgmental about that. Yet they, yet you and your colleagues are the people feeding all of us. And that has this deep nobility that I don't think is appreciated in this marketplace in a meaningful mm-hmm. way. Yep, yeah, it was a it was a big uh, it was a big detriment and a massive responsibility that was um, ungraspable ungraspable when well how was it that was said when it said you know the rancher and the farmer feeds the world and yeah. it's like whoa. Uh, right. I, you know, that's a lot. And that's actually, we're, we want to feed our communities and we want to feed our, ourselves and our families. And, um, and each farmer and rancher does that all over the globe. It's, and that was a big thing. And that, and that was what created big ag in all the wrong ways. R- right. This, and, and within that, like capitalism rewards specialization of labor. And so there's rewards to that, but we, but, a system that's so narrowly focused on specialization of labor, it creates these silos where we, we don't understand the labor that's occurring in other places. I think this happens whether it's manufacturing, whether it's service orientation, or whether it's, whether it's agriculture. Um, how do we, and, and I guess part of your, your mission, Lara, is to elevate some of these stories through mm-hmm. Ground in Common, et cetera, mm-hmm. so we cr- create some awareness around this stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I think the one thing that almost everyone in the rural mountain west certainly in montana certainly in paradise valley shares is a desire for open space yeah 
there are a lot of ways to do that, but but what I think we're driving at here are new ways of quantifying how that happens. And as Malou said, it's keeping ranchers on their land. That's how you keep open space. But now the economic paradigms of how we value land have become so linked to property and real estate mm. that the incentives to sell are so great. So what are the systems we can put in place to counteract that or to at least lessen the disparity between those price points. And so that's everything from the ideas that Malou is describing and, and getting a premium for a product. Uh, it's also compensating farmers and ranchers through programs like the Western Sustainability Exchange in partnership with Native Energy for sequestering carbon and um, compensating those land management practices and then ultimately gravitating towards a model that compensates ecosystem services, um, like a very sort of wonky term. We haven't fixed that term yet. No, Last yeah, time no, we talked no, we about talked how bad about, a term we, it is. is. It is, but <laughs> yeah, on, that's, I thought we were going to fix that. that. That's the nature-based <laughs> solutions approach, right? And, right? and and a lot of those principles apply to the things that, that Malou is working on. So um, we need to be thinking about how, how all of those systems change uh, so that we're not just focused on, on real estate development. Uh, for quantifying uh, land and um, sure. otherwise it, 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 it will go in a very predictable way that I don't think many people will be happy with in the long run. Uh, I don't think we'd call it the Paradise Valley anymore. No. no. Right? Um, so what gives you hope that, you know, some of this stuff is going to take off, going to make an Im impact? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I keep saying this will happen. This, this is going to happen. Yeah. And, and it's up to us. It, it's either going to be a, t a tech company in Seattle or San Francisco or, um, or the Bay Area or, or here in, in our own, in our, on our own land and in our own backyard. Mm -hmm. And we have all the capability to do that here. Um, and so I, I've, it has to happen. And if it doesn't, we're going to continue to be in the same you know, like I, I go to quite an, a number of sort of conflict reduction conferences and, you know, just how... Yeah, predator conflict? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And other types, of, you know, I just was at a, a ranching with elk, you know, brucellosis stuff. Um, and, you know, how do how do we create a system where what put us there in the first place was was the, the rancher? Yeah. And, you know, again, I have to be careful with that because I am one and come from some, but it's true. And um, and so you know we also have to think about the the up and coming students and and the you know the kids of the generate the next generation that that's going to be really what does it and, and I'm happy to be part of the movement but it's really going to be the people that are coming out of these systems um, so you know looking at the way classes are taught around agriculture and mm -hmm. what are we teaching our kids because the way I see it I, I'm seeing a little difference a little change in regeneration regenerative stuff um, but I'm still seeing a lot of old old conventional things being taught so we're sort of we're just continuing that. Um, but I have hope knowing that um, it, it has to. I see a lot of scientists out on the landscape and biologists trying to find solutions. Um, and we have an incredible capability in tech now that we are really just diving into. And so it's, it's going to happen. It has the, to. Are there many, I mean, we're talking about like a tag in an animal communicating to your smartphone and a drone, like is a sort of technological infrastructure exist in in, in mm -hmm. your area to facilitate that? Yeah, I think the the infrastructure exists, okay. but we definitely have to modify it and build on it. Yeah, because um, we're talking about you know 
communities, sparse kind of municipal governance, et cetera? Like how, yeah. how does... and, and also the idea of tech and right. uh, Big Brother. Yeah, that's the other yeah, yeah, massive yeah. barrier in all this is mm. every rancher is afraid that, well, what now everyone's going to know what I'm doing on public land with my cattle. Well, if your cattle on public land doing nothing but grazing in appropriate and, and wonderful ways, then what do you have to hide? Yeah, although I think that that privacy argument is somewhat problematic. I think in, it's in, in generalized to other contexts. It's certainly problematic. But it's based on, in my opinion, it's based on old views. Yeah. And th- th- that might not be completely accurate. Mm-hmm. And so, again, we have to be okay with asking tough questions. Yeah, and, and I guess a distinction there it comes to mind is the animals are grazing on public land. Like, we don't need to necessarily get in. Like, that's a hot-button issue, too. Like, we, we've opened a lot of doors here that could be really <laughs> flammable. But the notion of, of ranching on public land, yes, it's, it is public. That's right. It's as much yours as it is mine, as it is, you know, some investment banker in Montana or, I mean, in Manhattan or some homeless guy in Tampa, right? Mm-hmm. And in holistic range management and and then and sort of these new ways of ranching and so forth is the old ways of of networking and community and right. togetherness and part of what broke the system of ag in my opinion is the the idea that we just closed all books and we didn't talk to our neighbors and we didn't share our challenges and our mm-hmm. failures and our successes and want, you know we have to get past that in order to get better and that big brother thing is part of that for yeah, sure. that makes sense. Um, and I get it. It's it's real. But we can also start to move beyond some of that stuff, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, do you see progress within your community, with your neighbors? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I have some gr- I have some incredible neighbors. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. If folks want to learn more about this, how how, how how can they how can they get involved? Or yeah, actually, let's talk about that on a few different levels, right? Like they're they're first as a consumer. Right? Like, how can I make better choices to support the great work that you and your colleagues are doing? Mm, that's a great question. Um, are we there yet? Can, can I buy a uh-huh. a steak that I know has been sourced in this way? Yes. It's predator safe and all. Uh, what, I don't know what the terminology yeah. is. but Yeah, tolerant or friendly. Um, yes, you absolutely can. And there's some really great companies through Montana, through the West. There's bison and beef that are that you can purchase, other sheep that you can purchase. Um um, it's yes. You just have to do a little bit of homework. Sure. And, uh, like and how, how do you do that homework? I you guess. can um, other than just sort of ask you, you know, after this interview. Yeah. Can I buy some beef? Well, I mean, like, w like look at Western Sustainability Exchange. Okay. Start looking at companies that are um, supporting these ranchers. Uh-huh. Start looking at people like Yellowstone Grassfed Beef. Um, that would be a great starting point. Okay. Bee Bar Ranch Beef. That's a organic, great, amazing um, place to get beef. Um, and there are many, um, many just like that. Um, and so just do your homework or call Yellowstone Grass for Beef or, or just do some Googling in the state of Montana. I'm, I'm a good resource. I could, I could definitely direct people to the right places of where I know that beef is coming from. Barney Creek in Paradise Valley. Okay. Um, uh, many others, not many, but a, a number of others that are doing really wonderful things. Um, and so as a consumer, that that would definitely be a, a good way to do it. Yeah. And then, Lara, we haven't talked about other forms of entrepreneurship happening in rural areas, but I know this is a passion area for you, and you're trying to elevate a lot of this work through through Ground in Common. Mm-hmm. How can people learn more about, you know, what's happening with rural entrepreneurship and, and, and 
and, and if you're a student here or somebody interested in entrepreneurship yourself, like how, how can you be confident that it doesn't only have to happen in the city? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so groundandcommon.com, certainly yep. that's that's one place where we're highlighting both things that, um, solutions that Malou and others have, but also identifying the challenges that need to be solved. So entrepreneurs that have the great skills that, you know, institutions like the University of Montana Business School and others have instilled, but would rather be looking at a, at a challenge to actually solve with their business mm-hmm. acumen, that's another thing that we're trying to pair more and more, um, which is... Uh, those individuals don't necessarily have the ideas that are coming from a challenge or based approach, but we can help tee those up. And then do they crowdsource that solution with a business idea in mind? Um, so those would be two different ways of, of thinking about it. But there are many, many um, individuals that I think have these amazing ideas, but just need this ecosystem around them to help activate it. And that's where the system needs to change a bit. And uh, we need to figure out what that formula is for helping those individuals, those rural impact entrepreneurs that, that need those resources. And investment systems need to change. Uh, they have to be much more accessible to a larger swath of society. It cannot right. be so rigid. Uh, do we need to initially look at grant funding mm-hmm. for those just to get an idea off the ground? How do we remove so many of those barriers that are in place that really prevent uh, great ideas from becoming business solutions? And I think that's the opportunity before us, and there's no better place to be exploring that than in Montana. Yeah, do you see any things to get stoked about with regard to investment paradigms changing and in, in this fourth sector, as you call it, emerging? I th- there's just so much more uh, conversation around the need for this change that okay. I, I definitely see it happening. Um, I hope it happens faster in Montana, but I, I see in, in pockets around the country, uh, there are individuals that are really thinking, okay, maybe the system that we've been you know blanketly supporting just with profit in mind isn't working for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there still a solution that is profitable, but has, as we were saying earlier, a much more holistic approach that's taking into account stakeholders and sure. not just shareholders? And I am encouraged because that will have to happen. Uh, we're just seeing too many examples of that Um, previous system burning out fast and there are durable models and durable systems in place it's just going to require a different mindset and uh, and I think those individuals are out there well I think two of them are are, are right here doing the hard work and I thank you both for coming in and sharing the story before we close Malou are there any other just issues I should ask you about to get you in trouble. Like, you want to talk about religion or yeah, let's talk about let's veganism. Go, let's you go into politics and veganism. Sure, yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> okay, yeah. What else could there be? Gun control. You want to talk about gun control? Yeah, that would be good. Okay. That would be a good one. We'll save that for for pod number two. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> All right, ladies. Thanks so much for coming. Have a safe travels home, and uh, yeah, really appreciate the work. Thank, thank you for having us. All right, that one was super fun, and I learned a ton. I hope that you did too. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. 
Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.